you've got your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them up to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7 we are in this morning. And as you, as you read through your Bible, you will, you'll notice that there are numerous occasions in the New Testament where people are amazed by Jesus. At the, at the end of his earthly life, when he was going through this mockery of a trial, Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate was amazed that Jesus did not speak anything in his defense. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, at the end of that sermon, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He taught with authority. We read in Mark's Gospel that at the healing of a demon-possessed man, the crowds were amazed at the power of Jesus. It's the common theme of His ministry that as people followed Him, they, they were amazed at Jesus because He taught with authority, He healed, He did all of the things that He did, and the people simply stood in awe of who this man was. Contrary to that, we find very few times when Jesus was amazed. This morning in Luke chapter 7, we see one of those instances. Read with me Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's the sermon we just looked at in Luke chapter 6. And after Jesus finished that, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's get a little bit of a background to what's going on here in Luke's Gospel in chapter 7 that we find here. Jesus has just finished His sermon uh, in the, the ending part of Luke chapter 6. And at the end of His sermon, He has challenged His listeners to put into practice what they have heard Him preach. Jesus gave the illustration. A man who hears and does what I say is like a man who built his house on a rock. The winds came, the storms beat against it, the streams rose but the house stood firm because it was built on the rock. What is the rock? Hearing and doing what Jesus has said. 
In distinction to that, Jesus says, the one who hears but does not do is like a man who builds his house on the sand. The winds come roaring by, the streams rise, and the house crumbles in upon itself because it was not built on the foundation, it was built simply on sand. That's the one who hears but doesn't do. And so Jesus has completed his sermon in Luke 6 by saying, you need to put into practice what you have heard me preach. And then after that, he enters into Capernaum, a small little town on the Sea of Galilee, the northern edge of it there probably. The setting itself is really very ordinary. Capernaum was just an ordinary, common town, The centurion was there. A centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers. They would work together and build the troops up from there. And each centurion would be responsible for his hundred soldiers to make sure they were doing what was required. It was very common practice. You would see them everywhere in the region. We read that this, this servant was sick. Sickness is common. We know that even today. It's been around with us. It's something that that we carry with us everywhere we go, it seems like. We go through flu season. We have pneumonia vaccines. We have sickness. Sickness is, uh, is not uncommon at all. We even have this servant dealing with the potential for death. Again, death is not uncommon. The life expectancy during the time of the Gospels would would barely approach what we would consider middle age. And so death was a common occurrence. You, You would see it, you would experience it in family, you would see it in the community around you. Everything here is common. Except that there is one point that is very uncommon. We have this centurion who has a servant. We read in verse 2 that the servant was highly valued by the centurion. The word carries with it the the connotation of being honored by the servant. Most people would consider a servant nothing but a tool to be used at, at their discretion. But not this man. To this centurion, this servant was a person. He was someone Someone that he cared about, cared about even to the point of saying, Jesus, can you do something here? Now, we don't need to to think that, that by the centurion doing this, that he was just concerned about what he might lose in the activity of the servant, what might not be accomplished. Servants were very common in the Roman culture at this time. Servants were everywhere. So it would be nothing for a man to have a servant, the servant die, but to be quickly replaced with another servant. They were just tools. They were just things. But this centurion had a care. He had a compassion, a concern for this servant. It's that care and that compassion, that concern that plays out in the life of the centurion as we follow through with this today. There, there are three characters, or one of them is a set of characters, that we find in the events that play out before us. In verses 3 through 5, we have these Jewish elders that come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. The word elders there doesn't mean mean elderly or or, um, aged, anything of that nature. It refers to those who were leaders in the synagogue. You have the elders that were called upon by the centurion to go and speak to Jesus. Can you imagine that? This This is extraordinary here. 
This is incredibly uncommon that you would have this centurion, this Roman, this Gentile. The Jews were not fond of the Gentiles, especially Roman ones, because the Romans were occupying their land at this time. Likewise, the Gentiles didn't have much use for the Jews, so it was, it was a love-hate relationship. We love to hate one another. That's the way that they lived out their lives and their existence. And here you have this Gentile, a captain in the occupying army, and he asked these Jewish leaders to go to Jesus for help. And they went. It's amazing. This shouldn't be happening. The synagogue leaders were not accustomed to running errands for anyone, much less a Gentile soldier like this. Why in the world would they do such a thing as this? Well, they let us kind of step in to understand why they would do this through their conversation with Jesus. They come to Jesus and they pleaded with Him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for Him. Jesus, we're coming on behalf of this centurion. He has a servant who is sick to the point of death. If you read Matthew's Gospel, you'll find that Matthew's Gospel gives us more of the details. Interesting that Dr. Luke doesn't give us the details this time in what's going on with this child. But Luke wants us to focus on the character of the centurion who is speaking to Jesus through the avenue of these elders. Matthew's Gospel says that the boy was stricken with paralysis, to the point of death, some, some drastic disease that had taken his body. And these Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they say he is worthy. Now as you discovered, we've read the, the passage already, and as we make our way continuing through this, you will discover that this was their spin on the whole situation. Their spin was, this man is worthy. That's just how they phrased it. That's how they put it out there. They're not really dealing with the facts here, as we discovered throughout the reading of the passage. But their estimation of this man was completely external. Their estimation of this man was, was completely dependent upon what this man had done for them. They applauded the centurion for the kind of works which people today even think will get them into heaven. I'm a good person. I've done good things. Surely this will get me into heaven. This will make things right with God. And we still deal with the same kind of thing today. The estimation that he's worthy, he is, he's good in some way. The centurion himself just completely blows their estimation out of the water as we look at it in a few moments. He doesn't attain to this level of worthiness in his own eyes. But why would these Jewish elders consider him to be worthy? Well, if you come to verse 5, you will find a couple of reasons that they give for this. First of all, for he loves our nation. Here is someone who had come into the region. We, we assume not necessarily by any design of his own. He is a Roman centurion. He does what the Roman leadership tells him to do. He goes where Caesar tells him. But he comes into the area, being in the region... He falls in love with it. He builds relationships with people. He's gotten to know the people. He's gotten to know the land. He falls in love with the people, and he truly loves the nation in which he is serving. This was unheard of for the Romans. They wanted nothing to do with Israel. They wanted to be back in Rome. They wanted to be back in the motherland. 
they didn't want to be here in Israel, but here this centurion was who for whatever reason had grown to love the land, grown to love the people, grown to love the nation. There is indication that God is at, his, is at work in some way in his life. He goes to this foreign nation and he falls in love with it. I know it's not Christmas time, but if you'll allow me to speak about Lottie Moon for just a moment. You're a good Southern Baptist. Uh, as the saying goes, you know you're a Southern Baptist if you wonder if you'll ever get Lottie Moon paid off. No. Every year at, at Christmas time, there is an emphasis for the uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's an offering that goes to support international missionaries through our international mission board. Thousands of people serving all over the world as missionaries. You're missionaries from the Southern Baptist Convention. As a result of what you give Sunday in and Sunday out, we are able to collectively add that together with all of the other Southern Baptist churches cooperating together, and we're able to send this directly to missions work around the world. Lottie Moon grew up in what many would consider to be a very privileged home in Virginia. She moved to China in 1873 as a missionary. The, the, the first years were difficult for her. Her heart was in reaching the people with the gospel and sharing Jesus with the Chinese people and She'd been placed in an area that just didn't really allow her to do that as well as she thought she could. And finally, through some movings around within the nation, she found a place and began to work directly with people. She began to make cookies, especially for the children, to be able to build a relationship with them. At first, they weren't received well. People told the children that if you eat the cookies, you'll get sick. And so Lottie didn't have much success, but she continued to bake the cookies and seek to build relationships. She dressed like the Chinese people. She learned the Chinese language. She immersed herself in the Chinese culture. And then, as often happens, the, the warnings of illness were overwhelmed by the smell of cookies. And the children came to, ate, came to eat. Relationships were built. And she began to share the gospel. Lottie Moon pleaded with Southern Baptists to give, financially to give, so that missionaries would have the means to do what needed to be done in the lands in which they were serving. She, she even laid out a plea for Southern Baptists to come to China and to help in the work. Severe famine came to China. It was discovered by some other missionaries that uh, Lottie Moon had been giving of her own financial resources, her own resources of food to help those who were in need, who were struggling. And in 1912, weighing only 50 pounds, the other missionaries come and they determined that she needed to return to the States for her own health and well-being. They placed her on a ship, but she never made it back to the United States. She died on board that ship. She gave everything that she had, did everything that she could. Why? Because she loved that nation. She loved those people. This centurion is much like that, in another land, in another place, but he falls in love with the people. 
we read that he loved the people so much that at the end of verse 5, he is the one who built us our synagogues. Now, that wasn't altogether out of the realm of possibility. The Romans would exploit anything to maintain their control over the people. They would even exploit the various religions of the land. If it met their purposes, at least they would do that. Edward Gibbon, who's written the masterful work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, has said this, Religion in this time was regarded by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, by the magistrate as equally useful. Use it to our own ends if need be. It's why you have Herod actually uh, putting into place the building of the beautiful, massive temple for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. A believer? Absolutely not. But let's exploit this for our own gains. And so this centurion, apparently no cynic himself, he, he had built the synagogue, but he wasn't just merely a contributor to the fund. He, he wasn't merely just one who organized the, the Roman resources in raising the funds to have it done. No, the, the Jewish leader said he is the one who built us our synagogue. This explains part of why they're willing to go. This man is a great benefactor. He has built our synagogue here in Capernaum, and so we come on his behalf. He's worthy of you to do this because look at all of the good things that he has done. And of course, these Jewish leaders, they, they have just a, a surface argument for Jesus' involvement. That's what they're accustomed to. Let's just look at the externals. Let's look at the outside. And on the outside, this looks good. This man has given financially, and he has built us our synagogue. We need to do something for him. He is deserving of honor. We need to continue this because if we don't, he may not give us more resources in the future. Kind of, lay, kind of like a lady that I heard about who uh, had a dog who had died. She called the local Baptist pastor to see if he would be willing to perform a funeral service for her dog that had died. And the preacher says, well, no ma'am, we typically don't do that. I, I, I don't think that we'll be able to do that. I'm sorry. And she said, well, that's all right. I'll just call someone else and tell them I'm planning to give $10,000 to the church that agrees to do this. To which the pastor said, oh, you didn't tell me the dog was a Baptist. Of course we'll do it. <laughs> know which side your bread is buttered on and keep it buttered, right? He's the one who built us our synagogue. Let's not take a chance on losing this. See what he's done on the outside? He loves the nation. He's done a lot for us. He's here in our town, and he gives a lot of money. That's all that Pharisees can see is the outside. They can only look on the externals to see what's going on. It's, it's like before the 17th century when people looked at a lake or a pond or a glass of water. They assumed it was clean if they could see through it wasn't until 1674 that a Dutchman looked at water through his newly acquired microscope lens and he described it this way, I now saw very plainly that there were little eels or worms lying all huddled up together and wriggling. 
Just as if you saw with the naked eye a whole tub full of very little eels in water, with the eels squirming among one another, and the whole water seemed to be alive with these multifarious animalcules, he calls them. See, when we turn the microscope of God's word onto what is going on inside of us, we find a whole universe of squirming critters and recognize our own sinfulness before God. That's why the prophet Jeremiah has said that the heart is deceitful above all things. The Jewish leaders were able to look only on the outside. And they said, from the outside, things look good. And then, of course, you have the perspective of the centurion himself, the Jewish leader saying, this man is worthy to do this. He loves our nation. He's built this synagogue for us. And then the centurion comes into the picture, not again himself, but through the work of others. In verse 6, Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion again sends friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Man, what a distinction. What a distinction between what these Jewish leaders said and what this centurion said. Perhaps this man has begun to think about it and he realizes Jesus is a devout Jew. He doesn't need to enter into my home, a Gentile. This, this will make him unclean. Maybe he rethinks it all and says, oh, I, I, what am I thinking? Jesus can't come to me. Obviously, the man is schooled in Jewish thought and faith and tradition. He built the synagogue. He knows the Jewish elders well. But I think probably what may have happened is that the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they tell Jesus he's worthy to have you do this for him and here's why. The centurion never intended for Jesus to be told that. And someone within the group comes running back to his home. Maybe another servant, maybe, maybe a family member of this servant who is ill and nearing death. And he says, Jesus is on his way with the others. And man, they did a great job of explaining why Jesus needed to come heal your servant. They told him how good you are. They told him that you were worthy for this to happen. And I think the centurion begins to think, oh, it's not true. They can't do that. We don't know the reason fully. It's all conjecture and saintly speculation on my part. But whatever the reason, he sends his friends to Jesus. And he displays such humility, a sense of unworthiness. He says, Jesus, I, I, I'm not worthy for you to come to my home. I, I'm not worthy for you to do this, but I know something about you. I've heard about what you are able to do. I'm, I've heard about what you are able to accomplish. I've heard about the healings that have taken place. And he says, Jesus, I'm a man under authority, and I have others under authority under me. They recognize that I'm a man under authority, but yet when I speak, still those in authority under me do as I ask. So Jesus, you don't even have to come, but can you heal my servant? Will you heal my servant? This man had obviously seen himself for what he really was. And he says, I, I'm unworthy 
I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This man had seen himself for what he really was. And isn't that the case that happens within our lives? Once we get a view of ourselves, once we really evaluate our actions, our thoughts, our meanness, our baseness, surely we would avoid ever saying, I am worthy. Maybe we come and we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, I'm more worthy than he is. Well, whoever said that he or she was the standard by which we are to be gauged? They're not the model for comparison. God is. And what has God said? God has said, you are to be holy just as I am holy. When we compare ourselves, when we look within ourselves and we see who we are compared to who Jesus is, we must be brought to the point of saying, I am unworthy of anything that He brings within my life. The great problem for most of us, the great problem for for non-Christians especially, and even for us, many of us as Christians, is that we are strangers to ourselves. We don't really know who we are and we look at the errors of others through a microscope and we see all of those wriggling little animalcules. But we look at our own sins through the wrong end of that microscope. We fail to spot the foul creatures that are bumping around in the darkness of our own heart. Brings us back to what Jesus said in His sermon earlier about the plank in our eyes and the speck in our brother's eyes. We are so prone to that. Sinner, today see yourself for who you are. A sinner in need of salvation, not worthy, but completely unworthy of anything that Christ would bring to you. And within that, hear the beautiful call of the Gospel But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the call of the Gospel. Not that we are worthy, not that we don't need help, but that we are utterly unworthy. And in our unworthiness, in our sinfulness, God sent His Son that we might be saved. The centurion here doesn't just see himself, he sees Jesus. He realizes the implication of Jesus' power. He recognized that Jesus has power to heal, even from a distance. And he doesn't feel worthy to meet Jesus, even in the street. What humility he brings to all of this. Two primary components of Christian faith, knowing who Christ is and knowing who you are. Friends, do you really know who you are? Do you know your identity? Do you know who you are? It may be that people all around you would treat you like these Jewish elders treated the centurion. They might say, he's worthy, he is good. But you know the heart. You know who you really are deep down. Do you? See, to come to Jesus, we must recognize and admit our deep, deep need for Him. The third one that we see here, not just the Jewish elders, not just the centurion, but finally we see Jesus. 
in verses 9 and 10, when, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. I mentioned to you before that there were oftentimes people were amazed, were marveled at Jesus. Very few where Jesus was marveled at others. In fact, only two. The first one we find in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus is in his hometown rejected by the people because they couldn't really see who Jesus was and they certainly didn't want to see who they were. We read there that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be awful for Jesus to say of us that he marveled because of their unbelief? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What a statement. This man who recognizes his unworthiness and yet comes with his need before Jesus. Why was Jesus so amazed at all of this? I think there are several things that amazed him. He was, he was amazed at the man's background. Here you have a Gentile. He, he has no covenant. He's not part of the covenant people of the Old Testament. A very little synagogue tradition except what he's experienced here and however many years he was there. He didn't have the scriptures given to him in his upbringing. I think Jesus was amazed at his occupation. Here is a soldier, an instrument of the oppressive pagan establishment. He's probably amazed at the man's wealth, and yet still he came to Jesus. You know, it's very rare that in the New Testament, wealth is ever referred to as a spiritual advantage. It's usually quite the opposite. Usually what happens, and I understand as I'm speaking to this, compared to the world uh, in which we live, all of us would be considered wealthy by standards, by comparison. When we have this wealth, we, we have to, a tendency to foster a this-world attachment. So we gain wealth and seek to add to that wealth in some way. That's why Jesus was prompted to say it's harder for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. He comes along on the hills of that and says, but with God all things are possible. Of course, God can do it. But here you have a very wealthy man. They were not known for coming to faith in Christ, especially in this context and culture. I think Jesus was amazed by the certainty of this man. Verse 7, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The certainty to it. An absoluteness of faith on the part of this man. As you look at the distinctions in the ways that this man is presented by the Jewish leaders and how he presents himself, how do you see yourself? Be honest. Just, just pause for a moment. Be honest. Maybe even ask the Lord, like the psalmist did, to reveal your heart to yourself. How, how do you see yourself? 
Do you see yourself as deserving of the grace of Jesus as the Jewish leaders saw this man? Because of what you do or because of your upbringing or because of the traditions that you follow, do you see yourself as worthy? Or do you see yourself as unworthy? In need of the mercy of Christ, but unworthy of receiving it. That's who Jesus saves. Not those who come in their pride and think, God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. You know, I know we would never say it, would we? We, we, we would never even probably acknowledge that we would live in that arena of pride to think we are worthy or that we do deserve something, but sometimes we get to the point where we really live it out. When things aren't going as we thought that they were, God, I don't understand. I try to serve you. I try to live for you. God, I don't understand. This person doesn't do this and is prospering in so many ways. What we're really conveying by that is a feeling of worth. I'm worthy of having you do this in my life, Jesus. We're prone to it because we're a, we're a proud people. By nature, we're a proud people. Can we see ourselves as the centurion who would come along and say, Jesus, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve any of this. And to throw ourselves on his mercy. Do you see God, Jesus for who he is, God in the flesh, our Savior, our hope, not our best hope, not our greatest hope, our only hope. The only hope we have is Jesus. Why? Because we are unworthy. <laughs> I know you can go home this afternoon and you can turn on any number of television stations and you can listen to any number of preachers who will tell you how good you are, how great you are, how wonderful you are, and how very, very much you deserve. I could tell us what we all deserve. But I think none of us would want to hear that. The only thing we are deserving of is an eternity separated from God. That's it. But when we recognize our unworthiness and we come to Jesus in that kind of humble faith, we find the mercy of God poured out among us. And it makes it so much the richer to know that we could have never deserved it. We could have never been worthy of it. That it is given as the free gift of God to one who comes in humble faith through Jesus. Have you trusted him? Have you trusted in Christ today? Have you come in this step of faith to acknowledge who He is and who you are and to be changed by Him and be transformed into a child of God? That is your only hope. 
It's our only hope to see yourself as you are and to see Christ as he is. Father, this morning we thank you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example given before us in this centurion who was made much of by the people around him, but who recognized his own unworthiness. But Father, even greater than that, we thank you for Jesus being written all over this. That Jesus received this one, but he marveled at this kind of faith. The kind of faith that in humility says, I deserve none of but receives it with a grateful heart of praise and thanksgiving. Make our hearts like that, please, Jesus. I ask in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We'll sing together. Perhaps there's a response that you need to make. Maybe you'd like to unite with the church family be standing here. I'd love to talk with you further about that. Maybe you'd like to talk about what it means to be a Christian, how to become a Christian. would love to begin that conversation with you this morning. There's a response you need to make. We invite you to come. You come as we sing together this morning.